Today, as you've heard already, is the day of Pentecost. It's this celebration. It's the birthday of the church. It's this celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. And it comes from the Greek word for 50th. It took place 50 days after Passover. And so originally it was this agricultural celebration of the first wheat harvest of spring. And so it was this time when people were showing their gratitude for God's provision and care. Um, And so Jesus has gathered together, uh, together in Jerusalem with his apostles, and he made this really bold promise. And the promise was this. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And right there, we already see this missional focus, this missional bent on Pentecost right there, that receiving the power of the Spirit is for this purpose of being sent back out to the ends of the earth. And so this is exactly what happens on the day of Pentecost. The disciples were gathered together. They've prayed. They're waiting expectantly for God to fulfill this promise. So Luke's uh, Pentecost account in Acts that Shay read just a little bit of it, we encounter something that really is beyond um, the realm of our imagination. It was the dawn of the day of Pentecost when this eruption, I just love the words, an eruption like the sound of a violent wind, which is really interesting, uh, the choice of that word. It's more like the wind of a tornado than this gentle ocean breeze. Uh, It is moving. And this sound fills the house. And so where the wind of God, if we remember back to Genesis and the creation, the wind of God that once brings to life the creation is now the thing that brings life to God's people, the church. And so people from all over the known world uh, would have been gathered in Jerusalem. And the miracle of Pentecost is that each person hears Jesus Christ proclaimed in their own native language. I was hanging out with a friend the other day, and he's like, yeah, you know what? On Pentecost, you should just start your sermon and just speak a bunch of gibberish and then leave. Um, And it would have been really short. Some people would have been really happy. Um, But then we would, doesn't the Bible say we would need an interpreter? So Dale, I would expect you uh, to interpret what the gibberish was, and then it would be over, and we'd, we'd all go home. Um, but this is the miracle, right, that, that each person hears Christ proclaimed. They hear the gospel in their own native language. So it's not the gibberish. It's actually the hearing in their own native tongue. That's the miracle of Pentecost. And so, like, I was thinking about this, and I'm like, it is hard enough to teach the coming of the Holy Spirit to, like, really smart people like you. But I once tried to do this with middle school kids, right? And so I was thinking to myself, like, Michelle, we were talking about this. Michelle's a middle school teacher. We were talking about this, like, saying, look, if you can, if you can teach middle school kids, you can do anything in the world. Anything. I'm telling you, this is just a true, right? Like, Michelle, we agree on that, all right? It is just absolutely true. And so I was thinking to myself, and so it's funny, because I think, Dale, you can help me out here. But there's all these ways that people have tried to, like object lessons that people have tried to use to explain the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. And it turns out that almost every single one of them is heretical, right? Like, you know, you think about, people used to talk about ice being what, water, gas, and liquid. Uh, We tried an egg. It turns out that one's some heresy. The yolk, (laughs) the white, and the shell. Um, Jeff, you have another one? Okay, what is it? Oh, Yeah. That has its own um, space and sound, right? You play a 
another note, that has its own phase of sound, another note. But when you put, you put them together, they each have their own space and sound, but they also have an interplay with each other. Oh, that's good. And, you know, a chord. It's a close, Jeremy Bigby is a, a theologian that wrote about that, and I heard him speak at Fuller once, and I was like, that's actually really good. That, that is excellent. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go right. We'll go with that one. I like that one too. So, so mine was so I wasn't going with the the Trinity. I was just going to try to explain like to these kids. So I had a room of about I think it was about sixty some middle schoolers. It was just jam packed with kids, and I'm like, all right, how am I going to get my point across that Jesus is leaving, the Spirit is coming, but even greater things are in store for the world. This is what we're going to look at when we get to the text. So my brilliant idea was a can of shaving cream. All right, so now stay, stay with me here. I went out, I know, I went out and I bought multiple cans of that, those Barbasol, like, 99-cent shaving cream cans. Um, have you ever emptied the contents of a can of shaving cream out all at one time? There is a lot, like, way more than you could ever think could fit in one can. I'm like, this is perfect. So I go out, I buy multiple cans of this, um, and I set it up. And the kids were, they're, they're like the most excited I've ever seen them. I, I emptied three cans. I'm serious. I had a mound, a, a mountain of shaving cream on a big piece of cardboard. Um, and so they were like going crazy. Um, and, and they couldn't believe their eyes. Like they were saying, how did all of that fit into the can? I'm like, ah, see, we're with the Holy Spirit here, okay? Um, and so the problem was is that we weren't meeting in a church space. We were actually meeting in the old Westlake Hospital. So when the hospital ceased to be a hospital, um, it was like this condemned building, so they put youth group kids in there. <laughs> there's, there's asbestos all over it, and they shut it down. It's not safe to go in there to have surgery or if you're sick, uh, but it's great to put youth group kids in there every week. <laughs> Steve, were you in there when we were? You were, right? So Steve was probably there for this day. Um, he did a year with me in middle school ministry, um, which was super fun. And so we have this giant mountain of cream, um, and the kids are going absolutely crazy. They can't believe it. And like, I thought I'd come up with a pretty good illustration of how Jesus leaving the Spirit's arrival could produce even more, even greater things. Um, and so for about two minutes, I was like a hero. All right, like This was going really well, um, and it was only about two minutes. So the parents start coming, and there's literally like 50 cars. They're lining up to pick up their kids. I always made a point of running out and greeting the parents when they picked up the kids. It was like my time to connect with these parents. 30 seconds, I turned my back on the shaving cream. What do you think happened? <laughs> An all-out shaving cream war ensued when I turned my back. In the blink of an eye, it is total mayhem. Shaving cream is flying everywhere. These kids were covered from head to toe. And when I realized that they started walking out the door of the hospital lobby covered and they had to get into their cars, and you should have seen how fast I went from a hero to, like, the scourge of the earth. The parents were furious, as was the security guard that worked at the hospital that I thought was my friend no longer. <laughs> I think I stayed for about an hour and a half cleaning up that shaving cream. So what I learned was, like, once you get shaving cream out of the can, it is impossible to put it back. Um, also, not a bad Pentecost lesson, think. Yeah. Think about it. Okay, so it really does work. Um, 
That's Acts chapter 2. That's kind of the main event. What we're looking at, uh, we read a little bit from Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at John 14, which is kind of this precursor to the main event. It's actually, if you follow the, the lectionary, which is kind of the year-long reading of Scripture, um, John 14 is what comes up uh, for the day of Pentecost, for today. So we'll take a look at that. And Jesus had something really important. He's spending uh, this last night with his beloved friends, his disciples. He had something absolutely critical he had to communicate to them. And he needed them to understand this in order for them to carry out his mission. He has to have them understand these basic things. He's leaving. They're staying, but they're not going to be left alone. And so there's something really beautiful in this passage. There's also some mysterious stuff, and there's a couple really challenging things. It's one of those passages that you cannot deal with everything, or we would be here for an hour and a half. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna t- I'm actually going to take on the tough ones, the tough parts, um, and leave a couple of the easy ones for another time. But we'll tackle the hard ones, and we'll see how I do. Uh, Dale, you can help me when I get myself in trouble. Just... Come on up and you can save me. All right, good. Uh, But we're going to need a little help, so let's pray. Almighty God, through your spirit, uh, through your son, you've overcome death. You've opened up to us the light of eternity. God, we ask that you would meet us here in word and in spirit, that you would speak to us in ways that would help us to know you more. Amen. Amen. Here we go. John 14, we're going to read 8 to 17 and then 25 to 27. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you don't, Then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact, here, listen to this, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I've said these things to you while I am still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything, and will remind you of all I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. The word of the Lord. And so, I don't know if your house is probably very similar to ours in this regard. Is food a big deal in your house? It is in most people's, right? Um, Like, it's a pretty big deal in our house. Since I was reflecting on this, um, it's probably, food is probably the single most important gatherer of Douglases, um, and all friends of Douglases. And so, like, when our kids were growing up, we used to be, I don't and this is kind of something that's, that's not as important today as it once was, uh, but my family did it, and we did it, and we were really intentional about our mealtime. 
So we'd cook up some good food and we'd sit down together uh, around our kitchen table to share this meal together. And so uh, the reason was is we wanted to be able to check in, we wanted to be able to share about our days and find out how our kids were doing. Um, and for Katie and I, it was always this time to like communicate really important things, things that we, we needed to communicate as a family. And so uh, like today, our kids are older, so like we don't do this anymore, do we? <laughs> no, we're usually like around the TV now. Um, but we never did that when our kids were younger. Um, and this image of this kind of table talk is precisely what Jesus is doing with his disciples. So he's at the dinner table with them for the last time, and it's absolutely critical for Jesus's mission that his disciples understand what it is he wants them to understand, that he's leaving, that they're staying, um, but that they would not be left alone. But the disciples are continuously in Scripture stuck on the leaving part. They can't wrap their heads around the leaving part, so they can't ever get to parts two and three. They just don't understand why Jesus has to leave them, and they don't understand where he has to go. And so Peter, just a chapter earlier, had said, why can't I go where you're going? And Jesus is like, trust me, you don't want to go where I'm going, right? Just a few verses before what we read, Thomas said, but Lord, we don't know where you're going. And now it's Philip's turn. He says, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Philip expresses this universal longing. He wants to see and know God. And when he says this, Jesus is like, you can sense the hurt in Jesus' voice. Like, he's hurt by this statement. He's like, you know, Philip and the others, they've been with Jesus the whole time. Have they not seen and heard enough already? And so, Jesus in his earthly life, we know this, the whole time he had been spending all of his time revealing God and making God known, and still, even at the very end, they are unclear as to who Jesus is. And so Jesus spells it out for him, really simple, clear language. He says, the person who has seen me has seen the Father. And so in this statement, like when I think about this statement, I think that we actually probably climb to the highest mountain peak in the Gospel of John right here. In the presence of Jesus, we are in the presence of God. It's like a New Testament moment similar to Moses encountering God in the burning bush. This is what I likened it to. The Father is locked into the Son and the Son to the Father in this perfect relationship. And so like Moses, on, we are on holy ground too. Uh, likewise, maybe we should take off our shoes, but I'm going to do you all a favor and keep mine on. Jesus is trying to convince us of something. He's trying to convince us to believe that he and the Father are one. And so whenever you see in Scripture, very truly, I tell you, right? Because we see that all the time. It's Bible speak for something really important. That's what that means. Something really important that Jesus wants to say. And it's this really puzzling uh, but important statements uh, in the New Testament. Because, this is it. Because Jesus is going back to where he came from, the disciples will do even greater works than he ever did. Anybody ever been troubled by that statement? And so I like wrote it out into, a, into like a Bible equation, all right? So here's what Jesus says. The earthly Jesus is less than Jesus' disciples. Anyone have a problem with that? <laughs> like, I do. I'm not going to lie. I, like, when you look at this, you're like, huh? Or if you put it another way, the disciples plus the spirit are greater than the earthly Jesus alone. And so this is like the biblical equation when you, when you look at Jesus' words. Like, for me, I, I, would, I think about this kind of stuff all the time because I'm, I'm supposed to, right? I would, like, I would give anything to meet the earthly Jesus. 
And yet here Jesus says that those of us who come after actually have it better. Do we have a hard time with that? How do we have it better? Like, really? And so the question here is, did Jesus make some kind of mistake? Like, did he mean what he said? Did John write it down wrong? I mean, I guess there's a couple options here. Um, No matter how prayerful, no matter how faithful, how can people like us ever do greater things than the Lord did in Scripture? Raise Lazarus from the dead, turn water into wine. Just those two, like, jump out at me. Like, I got no shot at any either of those. Um, and so this is really fascinating because Bible scholars never agree. They're just, there's so much disagreement your head can spin, right? It's kind of like politics. And so on this question, every Bible scholar that I read actually agreed to the answer of this question, which is really comforting. They all say that it's quantitative, not qualitative. And they talk about the fact that Jesus never ventured far beyond Palestine. He stayed very local. And after three years of ministry, you wonder how many people Jesus had gathered? Eleven. Jesus had 11 disciples at this point. And if you look at Scripture carefully, you're also going to find about 120 followers, 120 pre-Pentecost followers plus the 11. And so, like, I'm a terrible number. Everybody knows this in here. I'm not a numbers guy. But the numbers speak for themselves. Like, even by missional church planting standards. So somebody like me who intentionally starts a small church where people can know and be known, very intentional, 131 pre-Pentecost followers, that's still a pretty small group. Like, we have a church down the street that has 100 times that right here in our own community. 100 times. Like, this is amazing, amazing stuff. Jesus has 131 pre-Pentecost followers. Small. And so the Spirit, as Jesus promised, came upon the disciples. It drove them out into the streets on mission. Peter preaches his first sermon. 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus on that day. 3,000 people enfolded into the life of this church. Think about Peter, a guy who, when he spoke, he almost always spoke with his foot in his mouth, right? (laughs) Almost always. Peter, who was very slow to get it. Peter, who never took a seminary preaching course. He comes out. He speaks about Jesus, who had died and been raised. And we see this massive increase of people coming to faith. We see greater things. Think about this. We see greater things being accomplished in Peter's first sermon than we ever saw in Jesus preached a sermon. Think about, do we remember a few weeks ago when Jesus preached a sermon? They tried to stone him. Jesus preaches a sermon and people try to kill him. Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to faith. When I preach a sermon, people use the sermon podcast as a sleep aid. Right? Where's Frank? Where is he? Frank, did you hear that? There he is. See, Frank? At least I do something good, Frank. At least I help you sleep better at night, all right? Peter preaches a sermon in three. These are the greater things, greater things. Like, this is some absolutely amazing stuff that happens. And so these greater works that Jesus promises can only happen because of this advocate that Jesus is talking about, the Holy Spirit who does this miraculous work in and through the church, in and through people like you and me. And so I was reading this one, uh, there's this one missionary to India that really got me thinking. He just has a really simple motto, and it really made me think about this. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Like, that's really cool. Think about that. And Jesus is challenging us 
to pray and to act boldly and expect that God will do great things. It's like in light of that, in reading this passage, I was asking myself some tough questions. Sometimes I wonder, like, are my prayers too small? Are my dreams too small? Are my actions bold enough? Am I trusting that God is going to use me, us, to do these greater things that Jesus was promising? And then we get to another mysterious saying, and this is the one, like, I'm not sure, Dale, you're going to have to help me here. Have you ever heard people preach that um, I'll do whatever you ask in my name? Do people just avoid that and just pretend like it wasn't there? Or do you, would you, you would talk about it? All right, good. I'm going to, I'm going to try and we'll see what happens. I, I, have an, I have a thought on it. But this statement's been pretty troubling for some people. And so people who pray for something uh, and those prayers don't seem to get answered. But Jesus says, hey, whatever you ask for in my name. And I'm like, everything? Really? Um, and so I wonder if Jesus isn't trying to communicate something that's supposed to be understood as deeply relational. And this is what I think is really happening here. And so anyone who's been a parent um, has probably said something really similar. So if parents, have you ever said this to your kids? I would do absolutely anything for you. Anything. Anyone ever said that? You think it if you haven't said it. And so what do we mean when we say that? We mean this in the relational sense because there's a lot of things that you wouldn't do for your kids, right? If push came to shove. Like, we mean that in a relational sense, not in this literal sense. And as parents, we would all agree. We would say we would do anything for our kids. But what we're doing is we're trying to communicate something really important. We're trying to communicate this infinite love that we have for our children, a love that says that under any circumstances, no matter what ever happens, that we'll be there for them. This is what we're communicating when we say that, a love that communicates that we will always seek their well-being even ahead of our own. And so I wonder, is this what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples? Is he trying to communicate this in a relational sense, that Jesus is leaving, that his disciples are staying, but that they're not going to be left without a divine presence or a divine parent, if you will? It's this reminder that God's love for us is infinite, that God seeks our well-being, that God loves us like a daughter or a son. And so Jesus is leaving in the flesh in order to be present everywhere with everyone. This is the thing he just has to have them understand. And so the literal translation for the advocate, the Holy Spirit, is the one called alongside. It made me think about people. So I just asked myself a couple of questions. I was interested in this. Who in your life has been there for you uh, when you needed them the most? Can you think of who that person is? And then the second part of the Spirit, what this text says, not only that, but do you trust this person to confront you and tell you the truth when you need to hear the truth? Because it says those two things. We're talking about presence and being able to confront and deal with some truth-telling. Maybe we can name at least one person. And Jesus says that for the person who's a follower of Christ, that that person, the person uh, that's with us, when we need them the most, the person that can confront us with the truth uh, is none other than the Holy Spirit, the abiding personal presence of Jesus himself. And so, just like on the original day of Pentecost, this is the stuff that really, I think, is fun about Pentecost. The Spirit is this enlivening wind of God that breathes life into the church for the purpose of what like we in the church world call the missio dei, the mission of God. 
And this is where we play a part. That Pentecost reminds us that the Spirit has come to teach us everything about Jesus, everything that we need to know. The Spirit's come to encourage us, to be with us through it all, but also to send us back out on mission to do the greater things that Jesus promised. It's like thinking about how much shaving cream can fit in one can. The power of the Spirit. How much can the power of the Spirit accomplish through faithful, prayerful, willing followers of Jesus? And so I love this, that Pentecost wasn't just a day that happened a long time ago. What it says to me is it says that the spirit of Jesus has been turned loose in the world. That God is present and active. And that as we gather together here in worship, we're gathered together, and we say this all the time at Lightchain, we're gathered together in order to be scattered back out into our community to join the spirit on mission. And so we know that God is already active out in our communities. It's like God is beckoning us to join God in and on mission. And so we're sent back out on this mission of pointing others to God's love in Jesus Christ in word and deed. And so may we pray boldly, may we act boldly, trusting that God still will do these greater things that Jesus promised as a result of our welcoming the Holy Spirit into our lives and into our community. Let's pray.